Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. And we are back solo, sadly. But, uh, you know, I, I also like it when it's just the two of us. It was really fun. It was really useful having a co-host who knew something about stuff that I don't know anything about. It was good. Yeah. And having Emily around was a... It brought a, a different kind of energy to mm-hmm. the virtual room, I guess. No, it was really nice. It was good. Yeah. But luckily, we're back in the realm where I feel more comfortable this week, talking about really traditional YA fantasy in the form of fairy tale retellings, which I feel a little more comfortable with. Yeah, I think we're going to have some things to talk about. Cool. So we are talking about Ella Enchanted, the 1997 book by Gail Carson Levine, and the 2004 film adaptation by Tommy O'Haver, and five different people who wrote the screenplay. That might show a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe just a touch. Just a little bit. Yeah. But before we get to that, as always, do you have any news? I do. I have a book to tell our listeners about that I wasn't going to talk about this week because I hadn't had a chance to actually like get in. And while I very rarely wait till I've actually finished a book to tell our listeners about it, I do try to have read a few chapters. But as Joe knows, because he's been waiting to start this recording, my toddler spent the last (laughs) hour and a half not napping. And so while he and I were in negotiations, read the nap, I got to read the first couple of chapters of A Danger to Herself and Others by Alyssa Scheinmel. That's quite the title. I know. Joe, this one, I think it might be right up your alley. So the book opens with a teenager named Hannah, and she's in like a mental hospital. That's where the narrative opens. And all we know is that she's there because there was an accident at school, and her roommate Agnes is in a coma, and that's all we know at the opening of the story. She is. What we learn over the first couple of chapters is that Hannah definitely believes there's been a mistake. She's not supposed to be in the hospital. And that's... That's one of my biggest fears. <laughs> right. But she does let us know that Anna and Agnes were playing a bunch of sort of teen girl games in their dorm room. They're both at a summer program at Stanford University. It's the summer between junior and senior year of high school, and they're trying to get some advanced credits. And they were playing light as a feather, stiff as a board, which is so exciting to me that apparently kids still play that. <laughs> and uh, truth or dare... And we don't know what has happened, but Agnes ends up on the floor, or on the ground outside the window of their second floor dorm room. Yes. So she's been locked away in this hospital, and she's been designated as a danger to herself and others. So she's not allowed to leave her secured room. She takes all her meals in there. Everything happens in that room. And Agnes's parents will not allow her, or wouldn't before she was hospitalized, would not allow her to visit Agnes in the hospital. So that's all we know. And then at the end of the first chapter, she tells us she's looking out over the grounds and all she can see is one tree. And then at the end of the next chapter, she tells us she lied before they're actually in a forest. (laughs) And so at the end of each chapter, you get like this little bit of unreliable narrator, but like lying about stupid, unnecessary stuff. Mm-hmm. But that undermines all of the other things that she's saying, right? Like, exactly. how much can you trust her if she's lying about these innocuous details? Exactly. And I know you love an unreliable narrator, Joe. I do. I do. <laughs> so um, I'm only about five chapters in. A roommate has just arrived, Lucy. And um, my first thought, 
given the structure of the book, given the content. Yes, this is my first thought. (laughs) No evidence of that yet, but that's where I'm going with it. Anyway, definitely like I was like three chapters in and I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about this on the podcast today because this is a book for Joe. Nice. So it's A Danger to Herself and Others by Alyssa Scheinmel. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Fancy. I like it. (laughs) And it just came out, I think, it's definitely a 2018, if not a 2019, so it's very, very recent. And uh, God, it would make a good movie. I can already tell that five chapters in, so. That sounds really interesting. And I I always love it when you have somebody stuck in a single place, and then mm-hmm. you get to replay their story and think about, okay, how do we visually open this up and show the difference between the past and the present? Yeah right and like how do you how do you do all that with the added layer of we can't really trust anything this person is telling us Mm, so good yeah (laughs) what about you did you do any homework this week uh so i'm gonna be the bad person who i picked something off my holds list but i haven't actually read any of it but it caught my eye it's on the list for a reason Ooh. You know, we've had a couple of weeks of talking about different types of texts that are queer-centered or representing different kinds of sexual YA coming-of-age narratives. And I think we briefly touched on this maybe during our week on Simon versus the Homo sapien agenda. But we talked about how we're probably never going to have the opportunity to do a trans narrative because they just don't make film adaptations mm-hmm. of these books. Mm-hmm. So I at least wanted to highlight the fact that there are lots of books out there that people could be checking out. And I found one that also intersects with a non-white protagonist. So Mm. the book that I'm advocating for this week is Fierce Femmes and Notorious Liars, A Dangerous Trans Girl's Confabulous Memoir by Kai Chen Tom. That's the best title ever. It just sounds like a lot of fun. So Totally. I'll read you the summary. And again, I haven't read this, so I don't actually know how it shakes up. But I think you might like this one as well. Cool. So this is a coming of age story about a young Asian trans girl, pathological liar and kung fu expert who runs away from her parents abusive home in a rainy city called Gloom. Striking off on her own, she finds her true family in a group of larger-than-life trans femmes who make their home in a mysterious pleasure district known only as the Street of Miracles. Under the wings of this fierce and fabulous flock, she blossoms into the woman she has always dreamed of being, with a little help from the unscrupulous Dr. Crocodile. When one of their number is brutally murdered, our protagonist joins her sisters in forming a vigilante gang to fight back against the transphobes, violent Johns, and cops that stalk the street of miracles. But when things go terribly wrong, she must find the truth within herself in order to stop the violence and discover what it really means to grow up and find your family. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, I pulled this from a book riot list, and it sounds like the kind of book that is going to be mixed with a bunch of different things. Initially, I thought, oh, this almost sounds like a bit of magical realism, only with trans characters. And I thought that sounded really interesting. But then when the murder vigilante aspect came in, I was like, oh, okay, I think this is actually going to be a little bit more grounded in the sad reality. But it does sound like a traditional coming-of-age narrative. So I I don't think we're going to get that unhappy ending that we sometimes get with LGBTQ narratives. So that's my hope. It's super exciting. Mm -hmm. Uh, That sounds really good. I'm adding it to my list like right now. Cool. While we're on the theme of trans narratives and like 
hopeful ones, uh, happy ones. Two books I've read recently. Well, the the biggest title I think for in terms of trans YA is "If I Was Your Girl" by Meredith Russo. Okay. And one of the reasons why I love it is because it's unapologetically a romantic comedy with a trans protagonist. Nice. And yeah, it's really lovely. I mean, it deals with all sorts of things in terms of, you know, complexities after she's, it's about a girl who's going to a new school after transitioning. So she's only ever been at this school as herself, right? Mm -hmm. But of course, things don't stay that easy for her forever right but it does have like a really lovely love story and a strong kind of conversation about the idea that acceptance is possible and community can be found and it's really positive and then one for the canlit crowd a girl man's up by me gerard which is about a non-binary teen pen which is short for penelope but what i like about girl man's up is that Penn lives in small town Ontario, and she's got old school, old world Portuguese parents who really don't understand the whole gender thing that she's going through. But she has a really strong ally in her older brother. Mm -hmm. And so the family dynamic and the narrative around family, I think, is really sensitively handled there. And it's just lovely. And yay, it's it's Canadian. So yeah, those are two to recommend. One trans, one non-binary. Excellent. Mm -hmm. I will add those to our show notes so that if people want to check them out, you'll have the titles there. Nice. All right. And I guess now we can transition into Ella or Cinderella and (laughs) the world of fairy tales. I have never felt so stupid in my entire life. Oh no, you didn't make the connection? Not until like two thirds of the way through when the pumpkin carriage scene happens. And then I'm like, oh, it's Cinderella, right. ugly stepsisters. Oh, I get it. <laughs> yeah, I think I made the connection when uh, Hattie and is it Olive or Olivia? I think it's Olive in both. I will look it up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, when the two sisters start to gain a bit more prominence in the narrative, I was like, oh, these are like mean-spirited stepsisters. Okay, I get it. Because it's it's really not that overt, all things considered. It's not. It's interesting because like, it's less overt in the book, but I think more effectively handled. Like it really is all of a sudden your perception shifts and you're like, oh, this is the backstory to how Cinderella gets to be Cinderella. I get it. But in the movie, it's just like, we just threw a bunch of Cinderella references in here. Hope you liked it. Yeah. So anyway, Uh, I guess I should tell people what the book's about, huh? Yeah, that's helpful. (laughs) So Ella Enchanted, it's actually a Newbery Honor Award winner, which we haven't done a ton of award winners on the show. So that's kind of exciting. Mm -hmm. Published in 1997. And um, it's about Ella, Ella of Frel. At her birth, Ella of Frel is given the gift, quote unquote, of obedience by a fairy named Lucinda. And Lucinda is known throughout the lands for her crap gifts. Yeah, she's not the best fairy. She thinks that these are positive things, like who wouldn't want to have an obedient daughter? But then you actually have the experience of having to be the person who can't say no, and it's awful. (laughs) And the sort of saving grace for her is that the only two people who know about the curse are her mom and then her mother's sort of friend and companion, the family cook, and ultimately we find out a fairy named Mandy. So because she has these two allies, for the most part, she's able to keep her secret under wraps and is able to be kept safe but unfortunately her mother passes away 
and her father becomes involved with and eventually marries a woman named Dame Olga. And Dame Olga has two daughters who, yes, are ugly stepsisters, but even before they are stepsisters, they are schoolmates to Ella. And unfortunately, Hattie discovers Ella's secret, or at least she figures out that Ella has to do everything she's told, even if she doesn't actually understand why it's happening. And so they end up at finishing school together, and Hattie makes Ella's life pretty miserable, making her do things she doesn't want to do, making her give up things like her mother's beautiful necklace. And one of the things that's important about Ella's character is that she's sort of stuck being obedient, but she tries to challenge that as much as possible. So if you tell her that she has to go and pick you a bouquet of flowers, she may well put some poison ivy or bogweed in your flowers so that you have consequences for what you've asked her to do. But she can't always resist. There's sometimes no way to resist. And when Hattie attempts to break up Ella's only friendship, telling her that she's not allowed to have this friend anymore, she has to go and tell Avida. Arida. Arida, right. I just didn't pronounce that name all the way through the book. I just kept <laughs> skimming over it. Um, it's fine. <laughs> it's good reading strategies. Uh, she gets told she has to break up with Arida, like break up her friendship with Arida. And Ella responds by running away from the finishing school and going off to try to find the fairy who originally cursed her. There's a wedding, fairies love weddings, the wedding is in the giant kingdom, so she's off on her quest to get to the giant's kingdom. And so there's all kinds of adventures that happen along the way, but what I haven't mentioned is that there's, of course, also a prince, Prince Charmant, and the prince is quite interested in Ella. He loved her mom, who was a real free spirit and not like anyone else in the kingdom, and he appreciates that in Ella as well. And they're sort of thrown together. The curse makes it difficult for her to feel like she's actually choosing to be with him. Then Hattie tries to intervene and make her not be with him. But everything works out in the end, and she gets to marry her Prince Charmant and ends up breaking the curse by recognizing that she can, in fact, exercise her own free will if she wants something bad enough. Because of love. Because of love. Because that's the kind of story we are telling with this. <laughs> we so rarely get a straightforward, like, fairy tale story on this show, and this is really a straightforward fairy tale. It really is, yeah. It's interesting in that capacity. So I had seen the movie several years ago, didn't realize it was a book, and then when I was reading the book... And they're similar and yet also quite different. I was kind of struck by how just traditionally straightforward, you know, this is a bit of a postmodern take on a real fairy tale story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She is a princess in waiting, but it feels more contemporary than that because she, you know, she has something that controls her and keeps her to a certain extent subservient but at the end of the day she's very much like a modern heroine but yeah. also a bit of a princess in waiting yep definitely the traditional narrative line of cinderella is subverted in that ella is made like much more interesting and much more complete and rounded of character mm -hmm. but there's no subversion of like heteronormative tropes or anything like it's not a rebellious book yeah. it is joe you're perfectly right it's a pretty straightforward postmodern take on a fairy tale and i think for what it is it's really effective i kept wanting there to be like more layers and reminding myself that it's not even really a ya book right it's really sort of a juvenile fiction book like middle grade kind of i would say pitched book yes and 
for what it's doing as a straightforward retelling of Cinderella, I think it is really effective. Yeah. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. There were there were times where I found myself having that same discussion where I was hoping that it was going to do something a little bit more, I don't want to say different, but that it was going to try to, I don't know, just be a little bit more, a little more feminist, a little bit more... A little bit more uh, subversive, hey? Yes, yes. Yeah. And right around the time near the end of the book when the narrative really changes formats and it becomes more is it epistolary yes yes Yes. so when she and the prince are exchanging letters because he has gone kind of like on a princely sabbatical for a year to a neighboring kingdom and they're just exchanging all these letters back and forth and i thought oh no okay the end goal here is literally just let's get to a point where we can marry these two off yeah (laughs) yeah it's not the book's fault, it's my fault. Because I'm reading this through 2019 eyes and thinking, you know, like, where's the subversion? <laughs> where's the twist to make this more female-centric? Or even like, I don't need a man. And I'm like, nope, that's that's <laughs> not what this book is trying to do at all. And that's my issue. It feels very like it was written for an 11-year-old in the 90s, which is what it is and was, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, it feels, yeah. you can feel how in 97, if I had read this, as an 11-year-old girl in 1997, I would have been like, yeah, girl power, awesome. Mm-hmm. She sticks it to those horrible stepsisters. She gets the man and she doesn't have to be controlled anymore. Like all things exactly. considered, that is a pretty darn good message. It is, right? I think one of the underlying messages that I like the most in the text is that the goal in life is not obedience, right? Mm-hmm. Ella is much more celebrated for her her kindness, for the way she cares about Arita at school and the way she steps in to intervene to support her. Like those are the qualities that make Ella a good person, not obedience, right? Obedience is the thing that she has to actually like overcome. And I like that as a message for young girls. I think that's really positive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the other thing is... Ella is a really smart character. Like, she frequently ends up having to use her wits to get herself out of situations. Yes. So even the way that she'll play with the obedience rules. So as you mentioned, you know, she finds all these different ways to circumvent the orders so that she's never just being obedient. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. And sometimes when we're doing these in preparation particularly if there's a bit of a gap between when I finish either the book or the movie and then I'm going on to the other one. Sometimes when I forget what happened in one, I'll look up the differences between the film and the book because there's always websites that are like, what's different between this and this? Right. (laughs) So I found a a decent one for this particular pairing called Cinebrary. But Mm. one of the things that they raised in the section on the book that I hadn't really given enough weight to is the fact that Ella is really talented with her languages. Yeah, that's my favorite thing about her. Her use of words, which I think is really important in books. Mm -hmm. That kind of also helps to set this book apart from a lot of other things that we've read. One of the things that I noticed is that you can't be a sloppy reader when you read this book. Because when I first started it, I kept getting confused as to why she was taking some things as commands and some things as suggestions. She doesn't have to follow suggestions. She only has to follow commands. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I realized that actually Levine is being really, really careful in how she uses language in order to make it clear when something is a command and when it's not. And -hmm. if you're just kind of skimming, like you miss that fine detail. And it's actually really important because it's, it's why Ella is so 
good at language because she has spent her entire life parsing language, right? Like she has to, to be able to have anything even remotely resembling a free will. Yeah. I love that. And I love how, I love her facility with other languages. Like she seems to just pick them up very quickly and easily, which I think ties back to this idea of her having to be so attentive to language all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. I think the the principal fairy tale that this book is based on is obviously Cinderella when you start to get through it and you make all those connections. But there's also elements of other fairy tales and other princesses in this. Mm-hmm. And she she definitely gave off a bit of a Belle vibe to me. Yeah. And the idea that she's quite learned, she's quite adaptive in her capacity for picking up things like languages, but also cooking and cleaning and these other sort of traditionally domestic duties but she does have that subversion element to them where she can pick it up and make it her own so that she's not getting in trouble or not catching people's attention so that she's getting fewer commands or she's not putting herself in a position where her curse might be discovered because a huge component of this text is her trying to protect herself from other people by almost disappearing like she's constantly looking for opportunities to hide from other people so that she's not being commanded to do things that she doesn't want to do yes i agree completely One of the things that I found really interesting when I was reading around and about this book is that Levine wrote something of a sequel like a decade later. Did you read anything about Fairest? I literally only just discovered it because I was on the Wikipedia looking up the younger sister's name. And I'm like, wait, (laughs) followed by Ferris. What is this? And so Ferris does this, a similar thing, but with Snow White. The re- only reason I knew about Ferris is because I remember when it came out. So there's like a decade between these two books, I think 2006 for Ferris. Yes. Naomi Wolf wrote a scathing book review of Ferris for the New York Times, actually. Really? Okay. It's interesting because a lot of what we're saying about like, you know, for a book written in 1997, targeted 11-year-old girls, it's Mm -hmm. great. It might not be as subversive as we want it to be, but it's good. Yeah, Naomi Wolf in 2006 was cutting no such slack for the sequel. So in eight years, she hadn't, I guess, changed some of the ideologies to be a bit more reflective of the changing times? Yeah, basically, Obviously, because it's a book tied into Snow White, there's a huge obsession with beauty, right? That Snow White is all about fairest, right? right. Being fairest of them all, etc. But one of the things that Wolf really critiques in that review of fairest that I think is not true of Ella Enchanted, thankfully, she accuses Levine of writing very passive heroines. One mm. of the things that I actually really like about Ella Enchanted is that she might not always have like the physical strength to get herself out of situations. And in those cases, she does need Charmant to rescue her. But she always has the the mental acuity to come up with a plan, even if she doesn't always, isn't always able to execute it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like she's active in her own rescue in each one of those attempts. That's one of the things that gets lost in the film, I think, is yeah. that Ella is in the driving seat of her life. And it sounds like... There is less of that in Ferris. I haven't read Ferris. I've only ever, I've only read Wolf's review. I just remember when it came out because I was like, Naomi Wolf is being really mean to a book for eleven year olds in the New York Times. That seems like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite incident in the book is when she is uh, caught by the ogres. So after she's run away from finishing school, she is on her way to the giant's wedding to not 
meet up with her father, but to, to find Lucinda and avoid her father. Right. And she ends up getting captured by ogres in the middle of the night after she befriended some elves, if I'm not mistaken. You're right. And she's so smart in the way she deals with the ogres. Again, that's yeah. the exact example I was thinking of where she has the mental acuity, but not the physical strength to, to get out of her situation. Yeah. One of the other things that I like particularly about this incident and these characters is that the ogres have a really distinct personality that they can lull people to do their bidding just by the sound of their voice which i think is an interesting comparison to the theme of obedience which runs throughout the book in a number of different forms so i like this idea that she would have been complacent to them solely based on their powers of language but then she subverts that with her own linguistic abilities to turn the tables and say oh i can mirror this and therefore i can use that to save myself from being eaten alive (laughs) (laughs) and then you know there's still this fairy tale for 11 year old girls where the prince then gets to come and you know tie them up because her spell is enough to save her temporarily, but she still needs to have the meet cute with the future <laughs> husband so that he can save her. Yeah, well, this is exactly it, right? She can think her way into having them be at least passive enough for her to stay alive, but she can't like physically get out of the constraint that she has been placed in, and mm. which I think is kind of a nice, I mean... It's like a midway point. It is a midway point, and it's a nice way of saying like, everyone has skills and talents right yeah like we find out later that charmant can't do that he can't he doesn't have the facility with language and he doesn't have the persuasiveness so when he is alone with the ogres later there's a lot more bloodshed when he gets left on his own because he just has to brute force his way out of the situation yeah there's something very elegant haha about ella and her the way she moves (laughs) through the world that i appreciated yeah i think the book is actually really good at highlighting the fact that everyone has a talent and everyone Mm -hmm. is also fallible like the character of lucinda particularly in the movie is just really played for straightforward laughs like she's a full-blown idiot who has no capacity or empathy for anyone yeah that bothered me because she does really believe that these gifts are gifts in the book her fatal flaw so to speak is that she doesn't listen to people Mm -hmm. trying to explain that to her and when she finally has the experience she's like oh right this is a horrible way to live your life well and that that is such a powerful piece right it's this idea of again like the opportunity to try someone else's experience on like Mm -hmm. put yourself into their shoes which is another recurring theme that happens throughout the book but getting that snippet with lucinda at the end where she spends three months living as a squirrel and three months living as an obedient person it really you know snaps a lot of things into focus at the end of the book that i think delivers a worthy message to young readers There's nothing comparable like that in the film at all. No, I totally agree. Do you want to run the trailer and then we can talk about these together? Because I found the film, well, disappointing. (laughs) Because I really like Anne Hathaway. I think she's a charming and perfect casting choice for this character. But the film itself is real messy. So I want to talk about that. You betcha. Okay, (laughs) let's listen to the trailer. Some fairy tales begin with once upon a time. Some end with happily ever after. And some just throw away the book. Meet Ella. Thanks to a magical gift gone wrong, she's forced to be the most obedient girl in the kingdom. Just admit you're stupid and don't know what you're talking about. I'm stupid and I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Take that. Hold your tongue, Ella. (laughs) 
I really need to find my godmother and get her to take back the curse. Show me a map of the forest. Of course. Oh, cool trick. Now, Excuse me, come through. on the road to finding her freedom, hey! Ella's discovering an elf with an attitude. Take this buff! <laughs> an ogre with an appetite. How do you like to be baked? Boiled? How about free range? <laughs> and a prince with a fan club. Sharmont? Oh! No, please, call me. Call me Cha. Your girlfriend doesn't mind being left alone? I don't have a girlfriend. Oh? I have many. Oh. I'm kidding. You shouldn't believe everything you read in medieval tea. She never <laughs> planned on falling for the prince. I think you're gonna be a great king someday. We must find a way to get rid of the prince. Come on, guys! We got a coronation to craft! And she never imagined they'd have to save the kingdom. Drop that crown! So this is a film, as we mentioned, from 2004. It has five different screenwriters, and it's directed by Tommy O'Haver. The cast, as you mentioned, it's Anne Hathaway as Ella, and this is firmly set in between her two Princess Diary films. This came out the same year as the Princess Diary sequel, so she was very much in princess mode in the year 2003-2004. It was definitely a time where we thought she was never going to be allowed out of Princess Mode. Yeah. It's interesting because when I watched the film, I was like, she looks really too old for this role. And yet I remember at the time when I first watched it thinking, she's very well cast. I like her casting, if only because if she was any younger, the casting of Hugh Dancy would be back into Creepyville. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so as you mentioned, Hugh Dancy as Char, and people will recognize him from a bunch of different kinds of rom-coms i wanted to raise confessions of a shopaholic if only because i know that that movie is terrible and the book is similarly <laughs> terrible and yet i kind of love them both not gonna lie yeah yeah but for mature audiences i would encourage you to seek him out in hannibal because that's him at his best a very substantial difference is that he has an evil uncle in the film, whereas he has a set of loving parents in the book. Mm -hmm. And his uncle is played by Carrie Elways in some very inspired casting because you've got vibes of Robin Hood men in tight and you've also got the Princess Bride vibes. Yeah, he's got good, uh, good pedigree for this. Mm -hmm. The other somewhat significant change is that Ella's elvish friend is along for the ride so we have a character mm -hmm. called slanin and he's played by aiden mccartle and this film was shot in ireland so i don't know for sure but i'm gonna go out on a ledge and say that maybe aiden was a irish actor that they thought would be a good addition yeah i think he is a stage actor like i think he's a member of the royal shakespeare company ah, okay mm -hmm. i actually find him quite good i don't love the character but i find no. that he plays it with conviction so i'm inclined to go along with it he plays very well a completely unnecessary character yeah the reason i knew who he was and fans of british drama might also is that he played lord loxley on mr selfridge for two seasons okay mm -hmm. i avoided that show because i don't like jeremy piven it's my favorite jeremy piven role i have to say fair enough i guess if you have to have one <laughs> As Dame Olga, we have Joanna Lumley from Absolutely Fabulous. Hattie, again, inspired casting, is played by Lucy Punch, who mm -hmm. always ends up playing these kind of bad girls. Mm -hmm. Younger sister Olive is played by Jennifer Higham. 
Mandy, the fairy godmother, is played by Minnie Driver. Vivica A. Fox is Lucinda, the bad fairy. Minnie Driver's Mandy has a love interest who is sequestered to the magical book that Ella has. Mm -hmm. So Benny is played by Jimmy Mystery. And then finally, we have Steve Coogan as our de facto narrator, Heston. Heston's not the narrator. Eric Idle's the narrator, you weirdo. Heston's the snake. Shoot, yes, you are correct. <laughs> Which I only know because I was watching this with my toddler this morning. And because he has no concept of the narrative structure of the film, his favorite character is the talking snake. Fair enough. Every time the snake came on the screen, he would stand up and go, Oh, what's that snake name? And I said, Heston. And he would say, Heston. And then the next time the snake came on the screen, he would say, Oh, what's that snake name? Like he, he thinks that the snake was different every time? I don't know if he thought the snake was different every time or if a toddler can't conceptualize of the name Heston or what the issue was. But literally every time the snake came on the screen, I had to tell him the snake's name. But it, very much his favorite character in the film, if you were curious. Fair enough, yes. <laughs> Originally, the snake was intended to be a puppet and they very quickly realized that it would not work. So they moved on to really legitimately terrible CGI, which is a huge issue in this film. Also, like, uh, Steve Coogan is hilarious, and somehow Heston is not. So I don't know what you do to, like, wreck a Steve Coogan cameo, but they did it. Mm -hmm. I was getting a lot of shades of the animated Robin Hood, like the Disney version. Oh, and the I don't snake think I've seen that. that in a million years. Not a reference that I am recalling, my friend. Okay. <laughs> well, listeners, if you got that vibe, I don't know. It, I find that the film version really really leans into fairy tale homages mm -hmm. so i think i wrote oh, on twitter it was giving me live action shrek vibes as well as yes! pretty much the entire disney canon but you know what did that and here's here is one of my cinematic weaknesses i love a movie set in olden times with the modern soundtrack which is why i love shrek it's mm -hmm. why I loved A Knight's Tale, yes. and it's why I was really excited at the opening of Ella Enchanted, because I was like, yay, this is my weird cinematic wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. I yeah. mean, it's, it's a good juxtaposition where you're really luring people in with some familiarity, and you're saying, don't worry, it's not a drab period piece. It's something fun. It's something bright. It's got music, or it's got, you know, modern day references that are going to play well to your, your wheelhouse. And it's a shame that the film is such a visual mess because some of those are really genuinely had the opportunity to make me laugh. Like I'm thinking of when they're at the market and they're going down a staircase and yes. you realize in beats, you're like, oh, they're on an escalator. Wait, they're on an escalator? Oh my God, there's two people cranking the escalator. Like that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when it works like that, it really works. And yes. Unfortunately, there's a lot more misses than hits. Well, I think, you know, even as you were describing the character list, like they've just added so much stuff. My understanding is that the first version of the screenplay, the, the version that Anne Hathaway actually signed on for, was very true to the original text. And mm -hmm. she is a fan of that book. That's why she signed on for the project originally as her sort of follow up to Princess Diaries. Yeah, I think it was decided that it couldn't play in the way that the book does. I think part of the problem is that you have a lot going on in the book where she's on her own, right? Like a lot of that walking through the woods quest stuff is her by herself mm -hmm. or her meeting different people, but she doesn't have like a companion to sort of be 
communicating with. The book doesn't talk, right, in the in the book version, and there's no elven friend along for the ride. And I can see how that would make for perhaps a dull or less cinematic experience. Absolutely. But I think what they did was they, like, if they had just added the elf and not all the other <laughs> extraneous nonsense, I mm-hmm. actually think it would have been okay. At the beginning of the film, when you first realize they're getting rid of the finishing school part, I was like, I'm going to make Joe so proud because what I'm going to say on the podcast today is like, look at an efficient way of making a book more cinematic by getting rid of that finishing school Mm -hmm. concept and just leading us straight into the marriage. That makes a lot of sense. And then it just got so messy. But like there were good instincts in places. Yes. And then there's places where they just didn't trust the story enough. And so they are like, oh, what we need here is clearly a talking snake. Oh, what we need here is Eric Idle for some reason. Like, oh, what we need here is for Minnie Driver to be inexplicably not British, even when there's a ton of British people in the movie. Yeah. Like, I just, there were so many choices that just made it so ungainly, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I had watched this before, and the first time I watched it, I found the subversion of traditional fairy tales quite welcome. And I thought that the film was inspired. And so I was actually Mm -hmm. looking forward to revisiting the film and watching it this time with not even a really more critical eye, like just a touch of critical eye. It's Mm -hmm. like, this film is a bit of a hot mess. Like there's (laughs) there's some really fun stuff that's going on here. But it really does feel like, okay, to get to this little piece, I had to wade through all of this other stuff. But I think it really plays young, which is part of the reason why I think they introduced all of these additional characters and more slapsticky moments. And we've got the more traditional Cinderella arc to make it more digestible for younger audiences. I remember when I first saw this movie, I didn't see it in theaters, but Joe, you will remember that when we were in university, my husband, not my husband then, worked at the video store in our neighborhood. And so they used to get the movies, I guess, like on Tuesday or Wednesday that would be released on the Friday. And so you could always watch them early if Mm -hmm. you were employed there. And I remember, I remember Devin bringing home Ella Enchanted because I was so excited to watch it. (laughs) And I remember really enjoying it. I was deep into an Anne Hathaway phase. It is fun and frothy and light. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it played to a particular moment in time and probably a particular age as well. Like I think in my early 20s, I was way more forgiving of the kind of narrative mess that the film really does turn into. Yeah, like a couple of weeks ago in Divergent when you said this film made me feel old, mm-hmm. Ella Enchanted made me feel really old. I'm just like, oh, I think this is genuinely for children who would enjoy the idea of Anne Hathaway literally freezing in midair and then falling into a barrel of wine and thinking that that's just the height of hilarity. Yeah, and it's interesting because on the one hand, I think that Anne Hathaway is surprisingly good at the physical comedy of the obedience. Yes. I love the fight scene with the ogres where it really does turn into a live action Shrek and she's like hitting them and kicking them and it's lots of fun. Yeah. And like, um, I'm thinking of the scene where Sir Edgar figures out or he's been told by Hattie what her Achilles heel is and he's giving her orders and he tells her to like pat her head and rub her tummy. Mm -hmm. She's really great at communicating through her body that this is compelled action, not action she wishes to undertake. I don't know how to describe how she's doing it, but like she's firmly in Emma Stone physical comedy territory with some of those scenes, which is why it's, it's a shame that... 
I don't know, it's almost like the desire to cram so much extra stuff into the narrative buries the beats that actually work really well. Yeah, I think it really reinforces then the scenes that do work. They make you almost sit up straighter and say, oh, this is a little bit more of what I'm looking for. Yeah. And then when you have to sink back down into the other stuff, it's just not, yeah. It's bizarre. I find that aspect of it really bizarre. Because, yeah, it's just, it's one of the most inconsistent movies we've watched for this show. Yes. Yeah. Like, City of Bones was just basically garbage beginning to end. And, like... <laughs> Divergent is, you know, conceptually interesting, but pretty poorly executed. And this is just like, I don't know, there are real moments of heart. There are real moments of like, this is a movie I would like to watch more of. But unfortunately, they shift over to a random talking snake or the decisions to flatten some of the characters. Lucinda is a perfect example, Joe, you were saying earlier. I mean, you've got Vivica A. Fox. You're not going to use her better than that? It's crazy. No. Honestly, I mean, it's... Okay. <laughs> so this film is celebrating its 15-year anniversary this week. Right. It's why we're doing it. Obviously, 15 years is a long time. We've talked about big differences that have happened in only five to eight years. It was really frustrating to me that there are, I'd argue, three people of color in this mm -hmm. film. Mm -hmm. So we've got Lucinda, Vivica Fox. We've got Ellis Friend, who we have not talked about. Arita, who's played by Parminda Nagra. And people will recognize her from, uh, I want to say, ER? Yeah, she was on She was on ER, and she was also the main character in Bendit Like Beckham. Yes, yes. Yeah, and she's amazing, she's and she's wildly amazing. underused. It's like, let's cast really, really talented women of color and not use them at all. Yeah, <laughs> and then you've got Jimmy Mystery, who is oh, yeah. playing Benny, Minnie Driver's love interest, whose face is just trapped in the book the whole time. Mm -hmm. So he literally only becomes a fully realized character in the last seven minutes of the film. Right. So it's weird to see either this character who is just a face or these two other female characters who just get sidelined by the narrative or they're in Vivica Fox's position. She's just a laughingstock. Like she's either drunk or ridiculous every time we see her. Well, and she's stupid too. Like that's really frustrating to me because Lucinda in the book, she's very capable of understanding the harm that she has caused once she is given that opportunity. But Lucinda in the film has never extended that opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's growth in the context of like a fairy story, but it makes a difference in the underlying message of the text, right? Like part of the fact that she's able to learn to empathize like that underscores the importance of having free choice and being able to be your own person, right? Which is ultimately what the book's about. Mm -hmm. That's completely lost from the film, not just because of the way they use Lucinda, but that's a big part of it for me. Yeah. And we should clarify, it's not just happening to her. Like really, no. this film is unfortunately filled with a lot of caricatures and mm -hmm. it works better for some of the more comedically inclined characters. So Hattie is so hateable that Lucy Punch basically just has to show up and act indignant and hotty toddy. And it's great because that's who the character is meant to be. There's meant to be no depth there. Absolutely. And the same with Dame Olga. I mean, Joanna Lumley is playing her abfab character yeah. that she will be stuck playing for the rest of her life. <laughs> and she's doing it again here. And that's all that you're expected to get out of it. It's not supposed to be more. But for the characters who move the narrative along, losing that growth is a real shame, I think. And it's 
it's weird in a film that has so much extra crap going on <laughs> that they couldn't take the time and space to allow the characters to have their full breadth. Mm-hmm. And actually, Arita is another perfect example of that. So Arita is great in the first quarter, third of the movie. And then the culminating sort of running away moment comes around the breakdown in that friendship, yeah. the compelled breakdown in the friendship at Hattie's hands. But then we just never see Arita again until the wedding. And then she doesn't get to say anything. She just holds up a glass and also has two children at her feet, which when did that happen? (laughs) I find that whole thing very puzzling. Well, especially when the the world of the film takes place over a couple of weeks, not many years like in the book. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, because, yeah, you're right. In the book, it's like, and six months passed and a year passed, which I kind of like because, yeah, if it does take you... 10 days to walk to this ogre's wedding then nothing's happening in a hurry here Mm -hmm. but yeah no arita all of a sudden she's back at the end and she has children and you're like wait what 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 (laughs) unless those are her siblings and she's stuck babysitting during the wedding (laughs) (laughs) it's weird yeah i can't really explain the visual weirdness of that scene she's like sitting in kind of a throne-like seat off to the side implying that she's the maid of honor and there are these two small children sitting at her feet, implying that they are hers. It's very odd because these children do not belong to anyone else. We've never seen these children before, and yet they're at the head procession of the wedding. It's very strange. Yeah, but I would argue that those kinds of things are happening all the time. I agree. In the film, Edgar, the evil uncle, he is the current ruler because he murdered his brother. We are told this. We don't see it. We never meet Char's dad. But... He's got this master plan that apparently because Char has to take over, which was also not entirely clear why, but... Yeah, you have an acting regent. Why is he having a coronation? Mm -hmm. Why is any of this happening? Yeah, but Edgar has plans to dispense with his nephew, so he has this crazy (laughs) royal guard that we have never met before including what the director refers to as red stormtroopers who act like ninjas and appear out of nowhere in the climax we get one beat like a couple of scenes before where hector says oh i've been working with the red guard and then that's it and then when they show up they're ninjas even weirder though to me like so in the film version the uncle Yes, he's killed Char's father and he intends to do the same to Char. And so when he finds out that Ella can't say no to an order, he orders her to kill him, to kill Char. And it's like, I literally said out loud, well, this escalated quickly. Indeed. Yeah. Because it's not just like, you know, you're going to kiss him and like some fairy tale thing, like your lipstick is poison and he'll die or something. It was like, you're going to stab him in the heart with this knife I'm giving Yeah. And I'm like, okay, okay, what just happened? In the film, that's her moment of exercising her free will because she so desperately doesn't want to do that. But then Char sees her trying to kill him and it's all a big misunderstanding that lands her in prison Mm -hmm. that is just completely unnecessary. All of it. All of it. Because really the, the moment of her saying, no, I'm not going to do this thing, whether it's no, I'm not going to kill you or no, I'm not going to marry you and take your money, like in the book, that is the true climax. Yes. In whichever version you prefer. It's her circumventing the power of obedience for true love because she wants to be true to this person. She wants to be true to herself. The movie then mistakes that and thinks that we need to have a giant action sequence (laughs) at a coronation. (laughs) Which again, you know, this is so typically 
how do we make the ending of this film more exciting? Big action sequence. We've seen this all mm-hmm. the way back from the beginning with warm bodies where you're like, oh, did we need an all out war? No. But no one asked for this. No one asked for this. It's this weird element that I can kind of understand in an adult narrative where you want to end on something that's going to give men like action movie. Yeah, let's end this movie on a high with lots of like guns and blood and fighting and that kind of stuff. I love it when you do an impression of men. Yes, manly men. <laughs> but like in this case in particular. Yes, who is the target audience here and did they ask for ninjas? Exactly, because you've got ninjas. But then you also have a comedic moment where someone nearly kills themselves with a poison crown and it's really played for just full-blown belly laughs. (laughs) It's hilarious. It is. In the world of the film that Edgar accidentally poisons himself with his own crown. And he has a very funny, like, timber kind of falling over that would be a great pratfall if it weren't so confusing in the context of the rest of the narrative. Yeah, because just moments ago, we had what looked like a Jedi fight sequence from a Star Wars movie (laughs) happening. It's a very silly film. Mm -hmm. This could have been a very silly film that was great. And instead, it's just a very silly film. It doesn't know what it wants to be, which is a shame. I was super excited when I saw Eric Idle as the narrator. I was like, oh, I didn't think this needed a narrator. But if Eric Idle's here, I'm up for it. It's going to be great. And I do think about the first, I want to say about the first eighth to a quarter of the movie, I actually think is really exactly what it needs to be. Mm-hmm. I think the changes that they make in that first chunk of the movie make a lot of sense. I think that's before they start cramming in Sir Edgar and the talking snake. Yeah. And I keep coming back to the talking snake because to me, it's completely emblematic of what's wrong with this movie as an adaptation of this book. Nobody needed a talking snake. Nobody read the book and was like, I wish there was a talking snake. Mm-hmm. The talking snake isn't a useful character in any way. And yet there he is, taking up a ton of screen time and wildly misusing Steve Coogan. And you're right. (laughs) The CG on the snake is bad. The CG at the ogre wedding is some of the worst I've ever seen. Yeah, sorry, the giant wedding. Yeah. That is so bad. The green screen work in that in particular is where you can tell, okay, this is either they went on the cheap with it or they didn't have the production budget for it or they just went with somebody who could not deliver because it is really atrocious and it was bad in 2004 just to clarify it's not that it's aged (laughs) badly it's always been bad the scene where they're riding up to the giant wedding and it literally looks like somebody cut out two people on horseback and Mm -hmm. are like holding them up with sticks it's very bizarre and it's weird because I was thinking that, you know, in the timeline when I would have watched this, I 100% either watched this on my iMac, my like big bulbous 2002 iMac, (laughs) or I watched it on our giant CRT television. And so in either case, I'm certain I didn't notice the first time I watched this movie, just how bad the effects are. But like, even watching it now on our TV is not new or anything, but it's like, you know, flat for a start. It just, the effects are so, so poor. And in a movie that's already a visual mess that doesn't know what it wants to do with costuming or style or set, that the addition of bad effects just makes it honestly difficult to watch some scenes. Yeah. I was surprised at how much I disliked the ogre makeup as well. Yes. It's just really unconvincing. I learned that it took them four to six hours to put on, and I couldn't help why? but wonder why. Yeah. Because even stuff like their big fake prosthetic feet, I was like, no. 
Like, it really is visually unappetizing. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make me believe in the world. And if anything, it actually takes me out because all I'm looking at is, like, how artificial things look. Like, they digitized the sky to make it more blue. And I thought, you know, okay, for a fairy tale, you want the colors to pop. And I think, you know, the choices of colors for Ella's dresses and that kind of stuff, like that worked for me. But then mm -hmm. all the prosthetics and mm -hmm. all of the CGI is just really, uh, it's kind of barfy. So Ella and her stepsisters obviously have different senses of style and different amounts of money, but they live in the same universe and time period, right? Mm -hmm. And so Ella's costumes look like they come from an entirely different, not socioeconomic level, but world universe than what her stepsisters are wearing. Yeah. Like I would have expected her stepsisters to be in basically like more gaudy versions of what Ella wears. Yeah. But instead, like they're wearing things like Elizabethan ruffs and those collars that go up the back of your head like the queen used to wear and stuff. And it's like, what? Why? Yeah. And Ella looks like she's wearing like a velvet one piece. Yes. I don't know. Why would you just not have like a more blinged out version of the same kind of bodice and skirt set? You know, yeah. that to me was the kind of stuff where I, I just sort of felt like... It felt a lot like when you read a student essay that they obviously didn't read over before handing in. And like the author's name is spelled nine different ways. You know, like things that aren't so much errors as they are, was anyone paying attention mm -hmm. or at all? did five different people crunch yeah. this together and no efforts was made to smooth it out for consistency? I mean, it yeah. doesn't explain things like a production. Presumably there were not five different costume designers. <laughs> and yet... <laughs> And yet, this seems to me not a troubled production, but something where the pieces didn't end up coming together and you end up with little pieces of good, a bunch of pieces that don't quite work, but maybe not the time or the money to fix them or to have somebody say like, oh, can we go for a more cohesive look, tone, vibe, aesthetic? Yeah. I think my sort of bottom line on this Ella Enchanted thing is like, I genuinely enjoyed the book and I think buy it for the nine, 10 year old girl in your life who's just starting to get to that age of finding the subversion of fairy tale tropes really interesting, mm -hmm. but like skip the movie and watch Shrek instead. Kinda. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I don't know if a Shrek has aged particularly <laughs> well either, but probably not. You know, it's an adaptation too, hey? It is. I was thinking about that as I was watching Ellen. I was like, if we wanted to, but I've, I mean, the book is quite childish yeah. as well. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely like below middle grade. Mm -hmm. I think we're kind of pushing the definition of YA enough with this one. Yes, that <laughs> Brian may have made that comment. It's <laughs> like, this seems a little young for you two. And I was like, it's anything with children, <laughs> anything with coming of age. Anything with Anne Hathaway is on the list. Well, and admittedly, in the movie, it's pretty clearly oh, she's obvious that she's for sure. more than 16. Well, yes, it's true. But yeah, I think as a text you're going to give to someone to read, it's, it's squarely in the 9, 10, 11-year-old set. Yeah. Before we move into the YA bingo, mm -hmm. you can eschew this comment or you can dig into it. What did you think of the musical numbers? <laughs> so we've got Anne Hathaway singing Somebody to Love at the Giant Wedding. And then, mm -hmm. of course, we've got the uncomfortable final <laughs> song and dance number at the wedding. Yeah, okay. So honestly, I'm always going to enjoy a big musical number. And I'm always, as I said earlier, going to enjoy the juxtaposition between like 
faux medieval times and contemporary music. Mm -hmm. So I enjoyed both of them. It made me think, though, as I was watching the first musical number, the one where Anne Hathaway is singing by herself. It just reminded me of the Anne Hathaway backlash that eventually came where it was like, we don't want to see her sing in every movie. We don't want to see her have the same perfect hair and be the perfect girl in every single movie. And uh, you can see the roots of that in something like this, where clearly that musical number was completely shoehorned in for no reason. I still enjoyed it. Not actually the number at the wedding, but while I'm talking about Anne Hathaway's hair for a second, (laughs) I was really impressed that between being in a prison cell and rescuing the prince in a timeline that was maybe... I mean, real time, probably about 15 to 20 minutes of nonstop action in her life. Yeah. She did find time to go and get hair extensions put in mm-hmm. during that, which and is impressive. give them a, a quick curl. I mean, quite impressive if you think about it. Like in terms of my own priorities, I rarely manage to wash my hair two consecutive days in a row with my life as it is right now. So the fact that she fit in that, I mean, props to her. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> File that under Brenna's unnecessary observations. <laughs> I just think it's something that young women should aspire to. I mean, you really should have perfect hair in every situation, you know, regardless of whether you've been in a prison or you're attending a wedding, make sure that you've got those hair extensions in. Don't don't rescue a prince until you've had a blowout. I think that's pretty straightforward advice for life. Yeah. (laughs) That is the main takeaway from this. (laughs) Dare I ask what you thought of the musical numbers, Joe? Um, I feel... Like the wedding sequence goes on just a touch too long, but oh I do God, think yeah. that it's fun, particularly because every time you think it's going to stop and she's going to be able to get away, <laughs> they command her to do it, you know, with more verve and louder yeah. and yeah. and that's amusing. And then I'd completely forgotten the tail end one. And all I could think about was this propensity for teen films in the late 90s and early 2000s to always include a coordinated dance number so i was like oh i didn't expect to be thinking about she's all that at the end of this but also just how uncomfortable hugh dancy looks (laughs) just zeroing in on him really trying to remember those moves and looking like i'm a better actor than this why am i doing this there's the perfect sort of analog to that you have, I assume, seen Newsies, yes? Of course, yes. Yes. Do you remember in the King of New York musical number, Bill Pullman is just sitting in a chair the whole time and everyone is dancing around him and he right. has this look on his face like, it's in my contract that I do not have to dance yeah. or sing. <laughs> Everybody's dancing and singing around him. I got a real feeling that Hugh Dance wished in that moment that he had Bill Pullman's agent because... He really looks so uncomfortable. He looks so English is what he looks like, actually. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) I did not sign up for this. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, All right. Is that a good note to move on to our YA bingo? Yes. Let's do some bingo. Bingo! Not a good bingo. So I have two, and they're probably really obvious, but I'm going to say them anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. Dead parent, obviously. Yeah. Like how many how many weeks have we <laughs> have we had a week without the dead parent? For a uh, while it was looking like child soldiers was gonna be the most <laughs> important one. But I feel like dead parent has clung to that top rung. It really has. It really has. And in the film version we get two dead parents because we find out that Charmant's father is dead as well. Yeah. So extra, (laughs) double your dead parent pleasure, double your dead parent fun. Mm -hmm. And then our other one that is obviously rich people problems. Yeah. 
the problems of the royal classes. Yeah, I will say, I think my favorite character in the book, for no reason other than the fact that she's so money hungry, is Olive, who lives only to collect money from other people at every possible instance. (laughs) When she finds out about the obedience thing, that's all she wants is the pocket money that Ella has managed to scrounge up. But even like how she she keeps betting Hattie about how many dances the prince will skip with her so that she can just collect coins for every skip dance (laughs) it's amazing um i did think of one other one in the book version um parents just don't understand when her father would rather rescue himself from the bad marriage than help his daughter escape her servitude yeah we haven't talked about him at all he's a very interesting figure i find because it's not even that he's a bad or malicious father it's that he just doesn't care Well, and what we learn in the book is that he hasn't parented, period. Mm -hmm. Like, this girl is, what, 16? And she's only been raised by her mother and the family cook. And so when her mother dies and he has to actually, like, take half an interest for half a second, like, he can't even fake it. (laughs) No, exactly. I think the only other one that I would include on our bingo card, and it is a stretch, would be allusions to other YA. I'd buy it for allusions to other fairy tales, for sure. Yeah, that's kind of where I was leaning. I'll take it. Yeah. And if we want to exchange author for director, we can include a director cameo in the film. Oh, really? Yeah. I only discovered this because I was looking at the trivia on IMDb, but apparently Tommy O'Haver was the squirrel on a stick vendor. Huh. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, now we know. um, Cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So before we talk about where we're off to next, let's run through some social media stuff. Sure. So if you want to talk to us about how much you loved Ella Enchanted, you can find us on the Twitters. Use hashtag HKHSPod to chat about the show. We love getting comments there and we always respond. And if you want to find me directly to yell at me specifically, my handle is at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. Joe, where can they find you? I am at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. Nice. And we have an email, right? We do, yes. Thank you for that. So you can always send us something longer at hkhspod at gmail.com. We do check it, but we don't get a lot of traffic in there. So if you have something long you want to send us, that is probably the best way of doing it. But a lot of people just do it over Twitter. So Yeah, I know. And a Twitter essay is always welcome. But I am going to renew my call for fanfic. If you've got Ella Enchanted fanfic you want us to read, definitely send it to the email inbox retroactively six months down the line when more people have discovered the podcast and they're catching up on back catalog episodes we're just going to get this deluge of fan fiction we'll be like oh wow hey look at this we've got fan fiction from divergent six months later if we ever get enough fan fiction to do an entire episode we're going to let's be clear that sounds like a gauntlet (laughs) thrown it's like all right people step up that fan fiction game seriously okay so can i tell folks what we're doing next week yes absolutely Okay, because I'm very excited about it. So um, we're doing the book The Lesser Blessed by Richard Van Camp. Mm -hmm. Uh, It takes place in the Northwest Territories, and it's about an indigenous boy uh, from the Dog Rib First Nation, and it's his coming-of-age story. There's sex and drugs and violence and people coming to terms with stuff, but it's beautifully, beautifully written, really strong, probably the strongest use of imagery we've had yet on the show, Joe. It's definitely more in the vein of lit fic for a YA audience, but really exciting news for our Canadian listeners. I checked right before I went on 
the show today. And the film version of The Lesser Blessed is available on cbc.ca for streaming. Okay. So if you want to stream the film, it's like, I think it's like an hour and a half and it's freely available with your tax dollars. So <laughs> <laughs> go ahead and watch it and uh, we'll chat about it next week. Yeah. And for people outside of the country, it is available on DVD. So I was able to just grab this from the library. And in case you're not quite sold, the film version does star Benjamin Brett. Yes, that's right. It does star Benjamin Brett. I really love this. I've taught it a lot, so I'll have to have Joe rein me in on being too teachery about it. But I, I do think it's an under-celebrated YA book. And so I hope that people will check it out in time for us to talk about it next week. Yeah, I'm excited. I'd never even heard of it until you brought it up on the list. And I think it sounds great. Yay! And it starts actually three weeks of national-driven text. So we'll have... Canadian next week, and then we're going to travel to some other countries like outside of North America. After Whoa. that, it's all cool. very exciting. <laughs> all right, until then, I'll see you on the page, Joe, and I will see you on the screen. Bye bye.